Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus, the one who loves us. God has been very good to us, hasn't he? He's given us another Sunday to come into his presence as his people. Our air conditioner's fixed. (laughs) It's not so hot as it has been, but it is fixed. And we don't have to listen to those guys, you know, blowing us out of here and we're still cool and hopefully it'll keep us cool throughout the day um and we have a new wee little one as they would say in ireland a new wee little one have you guys gotten to see little daniel joseph i haven't seen him yet i have oh you have normally we get a little special uh visit that we normally make but andrea has been a little bit sick and so we didn't want to to go over, but we're looking forward to seeing little Daniel Joseph and bringing him to the waters of baptism today. Isn't that going to be great? Amen. Amen. We are in a wonderful, peaceful, and beautiful part of the story that God is telling with our lives. We'll look back on this time and we will remember the goodness of God. Uh, all of these children around our, our family calculated, I think they're are 30 children that within five years will be adults. Isn't that an amazing time? Uh, And, and, you know, that means that our adult population is going to triple in the next five years uh, in our church. Isn't that crazy? Um, And so we still have little ones coming and being born. And I'm looking forward. I don't want this to stop. You know, some of the ladies in the church are still having babies, but it's going to be wave two. Uh, of the the young ladies that are going to be, uh, Lord willing, finding good godly men, maybe even some even from this church, and marrying them and having some children. Um, but we're living in a beautiful, peaceful part of our story, even in, when the whole world seems to have been turned upside down. Who would have imagined uh, last year at this time that we'd be in the middle of a pandemic, that American cities would be being burned and protesters were going crazy and, you know, the news just tells whatever it wants. It makes up things that aren't even true. And I mean, who would ever believe that we would be living in a time like this? Uh, But even in all that, it's really not that bad for most of us. I mean, uh, everyone in the church has a job. 
Everybody is employed. All of our needs are met. Is anybody going hungry here at Foundation Church? If you are, see me after church and we'll fill your refrigerator and your pantries full of food because we can't. God is good. Amen? Amen. Now, crazy as it all is, it's really not so bad for us, but our days are coming. Everybody say, my day's coming. You see, God is not satisfied with the status quo in any of his people. He's faithful to take us and receive us as we are, but not to leave us the way we were when we came. We used to have a little saying here at Foundation Church in the early days uh, that God is not depressed or God is not impressed by anything that you've done and he's not depressed by anything that you have done. And God receives us how we are, but we are to leave different. Now, through these things that God is going to bring into our lives, and generally speaking, they are hard things. You know, we have a hard time doing this with our children. We don't like disciplining them. I mean, maybe there are some strange parents that do, uh, but we don't enjoy it. Um, But the deal is, is that discipline brings the fruits of changed behavior. And through these things that God is going to bring in our lives, he will continue to conform us into his image. So as we hear the word of the Lord from a familiar passage from Psalm 103, which we we hear every week when we start our service, come bless the Lord, right? That's right from uh, Psalm 103. And we also hear it in our conviction of sin as we walk through our confession. It's God's kindness. Everybody say it's God's kindness. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance and change. Now, you might say that means by God doing nice things. No, it's the kindness of God that he doesn't leave us the way we were. It's the kindness of God that tragedy and difficulty and pain comes to our lives so that we don't just become more complacent and more self-centered and more selfish, but that we are brought into the image of God. My prayer today is that God would be kind to us. Amen? Our call to worship from Psalm 103 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities and healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and he is gracious. He is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever, for he hath not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are as grass, and as the flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. 
But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. To such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye hosts, ye ministers that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, and all the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness, for your mercy, and for your love for us. For not leaving us as we were when you found us, but for being faithful to shape us and mold us, even through great difficulty, even through the fires of purification and the, the, the trials that come our way. Lord, you don't tempt us to sin, but you also do not leave us in our sin, but you purge it from us, sometimes through great and difficult means. I pray today that you would speak to our hearts that you would cleanse us from our unrighteousness, that you would lead us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake, that you might be glorified in our works that we do. Change us by the words that you speak and draw us nearer to you. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Psalm 51 is the hub of a wheel around which we can understand a great deal about what God has to teach us about his relationship with us. At the core of our sin and rebellion against God, the one that still beats within our breasts as the fallen sons of Adam, we are all, every single one of us, proud and we're selfish. Real humility, everybody say real humility, humility. not our stirred up prideful humility that we work hard at having, but real humiliation. People oftentimes want to stop short of saying humiliation. Humiliation sounds like a bad thing, but real humiliation is the key to serving God rightly. Do you understand what I mean? Our real humility, say it again, real humility. The real true state of mind and life that comes when all of the false veneer of our pride has been stripped off and we are laid bare before the whole world, that kind of humiliation is the only real road to righteousness. You might go, I don't really kind of like the way that sounds. That doesn't really sound good. I, don't, I didn't come to church to be humiliated. I don't want to be humiliated. I know one who was humiliated on your behalf. Laid open, naked for the world to see, mocked with a sign above his head, died the death of a criminal, and he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I could list bullet points of what humility looks like, and we could all work to appear humble. When I was young, Caleb, uh, I, I like to have these sermons where they would lay out. Here is how to be humble. You know, and be like, okay, humble is to do this, 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 and be like, okay, I can work on 
being humble. I used to like those kinds of sermons when I was a young man. I could take notes and, and then I could figure out how to be humble. But I really wasn't learning how to be humble. You can't learn to be humble. I used to call it this, you know, tying apples on a tree no more makes it an apple tree. Amen? Than anything. Apples got to grow on a tree for it to be an apple tree. No more than the pretended acts of love that don't come from the heart of love are real love. Now you understand this, right? Both of these things, pretended love and humility, are empty, hollow, and powerless. As it is true that the only true way to love others is to actually love them. Right? I could tell you, Steve, now this is what a loving dad does. This is what a loving husband does, Steve. Do this. And you can do those things, but would that be really love or just acting like love? There's no substitute for real humility either. Being humble because you have been humbled is real humility. Do you, do you guys understand what I'm talking about? Now, I've talked to men. I've tried to show them how to love their wives. I can tell them the exact same to say and, and the way to say them. But the truth is that if men don't actually love their wives, then those things really don't bring forth the fruit of beauty into their relationships. And sometimes the only answer is to lead men to call on God, to give them hearts of love for their wives. I tell you, we need to do this. We need to do this, church. And, and you, you know, we can do those things. But the deal is, is that we need a heart of love for God. And sometimes we just need to say, God, you know, I don't have that. Lord, I'm not humble. Lord, I, I really don't love you. Lord, I'm just not wanting to learn how to act like I am. The only way for us truly to have humility before the Lord is to be crushed to powder. And no one can do this like God. In the end, what this leaves us with is actual humility. And we really want it. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the... I want grace. How many of you want grace? Raise your hand if you want grace. He didn't say he gives grace to those people that learn how to pretend they're humble. He gives grace to the... To the humble. It's very difficult to be hard on others when you see yourself deserving of the wrath of God. Right? You ever try to stir yourself up to discipline your children and you know you, you did worse than them when you were their age and it's just kind of like, you know, that part of us that's mad and that's angry and that's indignant. How dare them, you know? And God reminds me and Heath, you know, Heath, it's funny. When I hear you talk about your kids, it's very similar to the way that I think about mine, you know, my kid, I don't want to give him excuses though, so I won't get into all the bad things I did, but, but, but sometimes I hear about what they do and I'm going, oh yeah, that was terrible. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, I did so much worse than that. And I just go quit, just, just get, just get, 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 get. It's very difficult to lose patience with others when you see that you have exhausted God's patience and the patience of everybody else. It's impossible to expect others to be strong when you find yourself paralyzed with weakness yourself. I spent a lot of my years making fun of weak people and God has now made me weak. <laughs> Isn't that funny? 
And you might go, what are you talking about? I can tell you. My neighbor wanted to give me some stuff. He's like, I got some stuff over in my garage. I'm like, that's great. I go, I'll, I'll send my son over. He goes, you could come over and pick it up. I said, no, I, I really can't. And I was so embarrassed, you know. Why? Because I can't lift stuff anymore because then I can't walk for three days. And so, you know, it just, it works like that. And so I used to make fun of people. I called them lazy. God has a way of fixing you from being hard on other people. And it's by humbling you, by making you weak. I know this is, this is really not fit for Joel Olstein's congregation, but it might be fit for yours. Okay. My prayer today for all of us is that God would crush our pride. Today's not going to be a, you're really good. God loves you. and You should be happy and feel good about it. It's not going to be one of those today. I know you've actually never had one of those here, but still. My prayer today for all of us, and I, I feel bad saying it because it's almost like, really? He's going to pray that God would do this to us? Yes, I am. My prayer today is that God would crush our pride. That he would break down all of our strength and leave nothing between us and him. That he would to us even if that means we stand in silence, only listening to his voice, and that we shut our foolish mouths before him. If I could sum up Psalm 51 in a sentence, it would be this, and it is the title of my message today. It's crush me, O Lord, but please don't leave me. Humility does not get any more real anywhere than it does in Psalm 51. As you begin Psalm 51, I didn't read it in my text. I wish I had, but I I didn't. Because these words were not written later on by people who just happened to know what it's about. It was written by David himself. It's inspired in the text, but... It's in parentheses, and people oftentimes put it as a little heading. But this is in the Bible, and it's in the song. When I break down my verse by verse, it's Psalm 51a. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. This inspired heading in Psalm 51 packs a great deal more power than most others. Most of them say it's, you know, should be on this instrument or sung by these people. But this one gets down to the nitty gritty. In fact, it does something it's not really done anywhere else in the Psalms like this. It tells us that this song written by King David came from a prayer that he offered to God as he sought repentance and restoration For his relationship with God when he had done something horrible. Did you guys hear the reading? Did you hear what David did? (sighs) What's even more shocking, more graphic and startling is that instead of offering a general statement like this, a Psalm of David, when he repented from doing something bad, that would have been bad enough, right? A psalm of David when he had done something really horrible that everybody knows about. It doesn't say that. No. It gets very specific about time, circumstance, and the nature of the sin. And it names names. Now, I can't really recall a song in today uh, in, in our life like this. This alone warrants great attention. It points to 
humiliation on a scale that few of us can imagine. The people in the Psalms whose names are spelled out for all of Israel to see were still alive when the song was written and sung. The psalm that we sing when Luke fell off the wagon and became a drunk and wrecked his car and killed some people. I mean, like, really? Horrible! The people in the psalm, what, what would happen, no doubt, was the subject of much gossip around Israel. It was certainly not something to uh, make David feel good about himself or Bathsheba to feel good about herself. Imagine what it would be like if your name was written in a song and we sang it. Everyone singing the song knows that David had sent Joab to fight the Ammonites instead of going himself. A shameful thing all by itself. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 11, part of our reading today. And while the men were away fighting, he was looking over his balcony into the home of another man. Voyeurism. And if that weren't enough, lust entered his heart and he brings the woman to his house involving his servants. His servants know. Can you imagine what he's doing here, folks? They all know. They bring the woman to his house. They all know what she's being brought there for. How shameful this behavior is. His servants brought her. He took her to his bed. And then if that were not enough, had her husband, the mighty uh, man Uriah, the good man, the noble man, killed so that he could have this woman for himself. The whole story is despicable. It is a display of self-love and wanton callousness. And the doing of these evil deeds, he involved the servants and even the head of his army because after David learned that Bathsheba was pregnant with his child, he uh, could not get her husband to go back home and spend some time with her so that he would get the idea that the baby was his baby when he couldn't do that. He hasn't put in the hottest part of the battle and the Ammonites kill him after the army retreats. So Joab was involved, the guys who fought with Joab. And then it says that others were killed too. So several others plus Uriah were killed in the carrying out of the murder of a good man. God's anger was kindled hot against him because this man had died by the swords of his enemies. That's even more repugnant. Here we have a good godly man. And instead of David just killing him himself as I mean I don't know if you can have one murder worse than the other but what he does is he lets the enemies of God kill a good man rather than being brave enough to just pull out a sword and kill him himself this is another heinousness to this act and God spells out that portion of the story he goes because you did it this way because you let my enemies do it this way I've got some something for you We'll get to that later. And to make matters worse, this grotesque grouping of sins putrid from the start to the finish, to make it worse, he did not confess what everyone knew he had done and were no doubt whispering about. He would have attempted to cover his sin had God not sent Nathan the prophet to expose him. And his exposition of himself comes... When his righteous indignation goes against a man who has stolen another man's sheep. That man will surely die. And Nathan the prophet says, well, that's you, buddy. Bad story. Now the first point being made before even the first words of the song are sung is that remembering our sins is 
part of a life of humility. We like to forget them. Now, we certainly want God to forget them, right? But the problem is, is we want to forget them too. We don't want to remember them. We can't stand it. We, we kind of want to hide our faces from them and act like we're not that person. But folks, that's who you are. It says in Psalm 103 that God forgets our sins. He does not hold them against us. He does not make us pay for them. Why? Because we couldn't anyway. But for us, remembering the miry clay. You know, that's why I like to sing that song. I know it might sound a little cheesy to you. He brought me out of the miry clay. What? 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 I was in a pit. What kind of pit? Probably one I dug. Probably one I was in. Here I was sinking beneath the waves. Here I was in the pit that I dug. Here I was. You know what? We need to remember where God took us from. Amen? Remembering the miry clay, the deep, dark pit God rescued us from makes the light that much more pleasant and keeps us from being so proud. Because that's really what we like. We're comfortable when we look good and when we feel good and when others think well of us. The Bible says there's really no room for that in the life of the Christian. If you boast about your goodness and your righteousness, just, just know God can arrange it to where you can't. And he probably should. That might be the only cure for you. I can tell you right now, I know that cure. God, God has fixed me 14 ways from Sunday. The way of true humil- humility is through humiliation. And I know we don't like this. I know we don't. If you think I'm applying a word I shouldn't use, if humiliation sounds horrible, then, well, read Isaiah 53. In his humiliation, his life was taken away. He was taken as a, like a lamb, dumb, never even said a word. He didn't open his mouth. How humiliating. He's just like being sheared. Have you ever seen a, a, a lamb? They, they, they shear the lamb and he's laying there and he's, you know, there's this picture that's happening. There's a one way that God washes us from our sins, though, is when we sort of embrace the humility of our own sinfulness. And we go, you know what? <laughs> that's what I was. Do you know the Apostle Paul often did this? He goes, you know, I am the chief of sinners. I am worse than the most of you. I am a wretched man. I don't even want to do the things, but I keep doing them. I hate the sin that I do. I despise it. Oh, God, who can save me from this wretchedness that I am? He's like, oh, oh, wait, I remember. God can save me. He didn't say, you know what, I've reached a level of pity. I'm on the 47th level of holiness. And, and when you reach that level, you'll know and experience the great wonders of being able to talk to God. Folks, I'll tell you right now, I talk to God and God talks to me. We're friends. But I can tell you right now, it doesn't have anything to do with how good your pastor is. And I'll tell you what, in the light of his glorious holiness, you see you're a dirt bag. Because that's what you are. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't call us a dirtbag. You know what he calls us? He says we're sons. He says that we're, we're sharing in his glory. He says that we're righteousness. But you need to know that you're just not that on your own merits. You are that. That's what's the amazing part about it. Is you're, you are righteous and good and clean and all of that. But not because of what you've done or haven't done. Because of what Christ did. As the song begins, 
We learn another of God's ways of washing us, and it is called confession. Everybody say confession. In fact, most of Psalm 51 is written as a confession, a great model for us as we confess our sins before the Lord. You know how the Bible tells us that we have not because we ask not or we ask amiss? We ask amiss, and I really believe that when we don't truly confess our sins, when we go, Lord, I got mad and I did this, but I wouldn't have done it if so-and-so hadn't done that. You know, like, that's not confessing your sins. Lord, if you gave me a little bit more money, I wouldn't have stole the money, Lord, you know. No. We're going to find out that David doesn't do that. We shouldn't do that either. But he, he begins to call out to God in, in just in verse 1, and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Is it according to how repentant I've been? You know, there, there was a whole, there's been times in history when people would wear shirts that, were, that, that hurt them. Do you guys know about this? They were called hair shirts, and they would make them itch all the time. And it was their way of saying, I'm really sorry. And they would walk around with these deals, and they would whack themselves with it. And they would flog themselves with it all day long. Do you think God really cares about that? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Not my own pain that I cause upon myself, the glass that I walk through for God. God isn't impressed with that. Have mercy upon me, God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. David is asking for mercy, and we should too. God doesn't always have to offer it because we ask it, but nonetheless, we need to ask. In fact, this is another amazing part of the story. David cried out for mercy for his sin. And the first thing he asked for, Brother Chris, was that his baby would not die. But his baby dies. You see, it's not always the mercy the way we want it. God is merciful enough sometimes for the baby to die. God is merciful sometimes enough for the loved one to die. God is merciful sometimes enough to let us live with the consequences of our sin. David cried out for mercy with the newborn baby that came from his night of sin with Bathsheba was born and became gravely ill. He cried out and cried out, but no mercy came. Again, at other times when the weeds of his sin grew up around him that he had sown in these wanton acts, he prayed for mercy, but it did not come the way he wanted it. His son raped his daughter. His son killed his other son. The greatest mercy is not that we do not bear the consequences of our sins in this life. The greatest mercy is that God does not cast us away from himself. And that we're not cast away from God for eternity. It's not the greatest mercy of God to let us go and to let us off and to let us sin. The greatest mercy of God is that he does not leave us to our own and that we are not cut off from him for eternity. That's the mercy that we can count on coming. That mercy's coming, Caleb. That mercy's coming, Derek. It's coming. That mercy's coming. Other mercies that we call mercy ourselves may not come, but that mercy Surely is coming, Brother Matt. Oftentimes we need the most painful and unthinkable things to come upon us to cause us to turn from our sins. Even our own laws can teach us this. I, I remember a time when I used to speed a lot and, and I had this great job. They, they bought me a car and I was making a six-figure salary and I was selling malpractice insurance. And I, got, I got ticket after ticket after ticket and my boss came to me and he said, you get one more ticket and I'm going to have to fire you. Be surprised 
how my pedal would not go over the speed limit for years. It's a miracle. Hallelujah. Nothing was able to heal my racing foot, but knowing I was going to be fired with there was the, the law wasn't going to let me go. You know, the law said after you get so many points, you lose your driver's license. And they're like, if you lose your driver's license, you can't drive around and sell malpractice for us. Sorry. We love you. We like you, but we won't be able to help. Folks, I'm telling you, this was like this. I was like, I think it scared my wife worse than it did me. She's like, I'll tell you right now, I'll kill you. <laughs> She's never actually threatened to kill me, but it sounds good. In verse 2, David asked God for more than mercy. He asked for God to clean him, to cleanse him. He sees the filth that sin brings. And he wants to wash from it. You know, that's what sin is. Sin is filth. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We want to forget it. God says, no, that's all right. Leave it right there. We want a carrot dangled in front of our face, Steve. And God says, how about if your sin is there? That might help you a little bit more than a carrot. Here David is saying that I'm confessing my sins. Oh God, I'm not hiding from them anymore. I did them all. I'm not merely sorry I got caught doing them. But I can see what I did was wrong and it was disgusting and I repudiate this kind of behavior and I hate it for the vile works that they were. Folks, when I deal with people in sin and they don't do this, I go, well, apparently God's got a little bit more for them. Some might say, you know, I'm the king and I can do what I want. David knew that. But David's like, no. Yeah, I'm the king, but I can't do whatever I want because there is a king greater than I am. We certainly sin against people as David did against Uriah, Bathsheba, Joab, and so many more. But what verse 4 does is help us to understand the greater error of our ways when we sin. Our sins are first and foremost against who? Against God. Verse 4, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now, this is King James speaking. You might miss it. But what David is saying here is, oh God, it's you that I've sinned against and it's your name that I have blasphemed. And you know what? People are talking bad about you, but I'm here to say there's nothing to be said bad about you, God. I own it all. I did it all. I deserve it all. And let nobody say anything about my God. David isn't denying he sinned against people as much as he acknowledging his sin at his core is disobedience to God before it is anything else. And what God thought about what he had done was so much worse than what others would think about it. In David's case, it might have even been to refute those that had justified his actions by saying, well, you're the king. You can take what you want. You can take any man's wife, any man's property. You can order a man to be killed. If you want, you're the king. Kings can do that, right? Don't kings have ultimate power? David was renouncing himself as the king of the universe or even his right as the king of Israel and saying, it doesn't matter who I am or what title they put on me. I know God's word is king over my life and I've done wrong. 
He knew no matter what others said that God had pronounced the things that no, and that no person was above God's law. We would do well to remember that most of us justify the sins that we commit and some of us let others off the hook of their sins by providing excuses for them. We say things like, well, you know, if you didn't make me so mad, then I wouldn't have hit you. If, If I wasn't so poor, I wouldn't steal. But what was I supposed to do? You have so much and I have so little. We say, everybody does this. I would have done the same thing, so so don't feel so bad, we say to others. If we live according to the standards of the time that we live in and not the standards of God's words, we will always fall short, especially today. Do you know today, I don't think there's anything that's a sin. The only thing that's a sin nowadays, I can only think of a couple things that's a sin nowadays. Saying that God's word is true and that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Now that is a sin in today's society. You can't say that. That's intolerant and that's mean. Acknowledging that people are different because their skin color is different or their culture is different. And that, that's, now that's a sin. These, these are the sins of today. Refusing to go along with the crowd and do what everybody says you should do. That's a sin. I don't think there are any other sins. Are there any other sins? I think those are the only three commandments there may be right now that anybody listens to today. God has different standards, folks. In addition to all this, David was fully taking all the blame for his sins and repudiating those that might take occasion to blame God and say that what God had said of David in his house would somehow not be as God had said it would be. He says this, that thou mightest be justified. He's talking to God. God can be justified when you speak and clear when you judge. God had decreed that David's kingdom would not end no matter what evil David had done. And somehow God would still manage to fulfill it all. You know, this is what God will do. You know, God has saved us. He's called us by his name. He's seated us in heavenly places in Christ. He's built mansions for us, and he has a future prepared for us. And do you know when you sin, you don't say anything against that. Now, I'm not encouraging you to sin, but I'm telling you right now, you're not writing something that that goes against that. Do you know you get to go anyway? You know that? Isn't that amazing? And that's what David's saying. He's saying, as bad as I've been, as nasty as I've been, as ungodly as I've been, it doesn't take away from what God is going to do. God had decreed that his kingdom would not end no matter what evil David had done. The Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 51. If you think that Pastor Mark has gone over the edge and declaring that David is saying, even my sin isn't going to stop God, then read it for yourself because it's Paul's basis of his doctrine against sin in Romans chapter 3. The whole chapter 3 is coming from this premise that's here in Psalm 51, and he even quotes it. In Romans 3, helping us to understand that even our sinful behavior is no testimony against the faithfulness of God or has any power to annul God's covenant with us. It says, let God be true and every man a... There is none righteous, no, not. There's none that seeketh after God all of sin and come short of the glory of... That God is just and he is the justifier of those that put their faith and righteousness of God in Christ the Messiah. He he even asserts that God's truth abounds in us as our lies multiply. At one point in his sermon he says, so where sin abounded, 
There what abounded even more. Grace abounded. And he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, God forbid. But what's still true? Do you know the more sinful that you have been, it makes the testimony of God greater. It's amazing. He saves prostitutes and drug addicts and murderers and liars and fornicators and homosexuals. He saves them all according to his mercy, not their righteousness or their good behavior. And we want to forget that's who we were. The Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians, he said, such were some of you, but you have been washed and you have been justified. You have been changed by God. You were all of those things. I don't know how God is going to do it, but he's going to save pedophiles and abusers and rapists and murderers. Oh, I don't know how he does what he does, but it will be a testimony of his goodness. And you might go, is it okay to be? No, I'm not saying it's okay to be any of those things. Those things are horrible. But I'm telling you, God saves them. Paul asked the question in Romans 3, well, well, then where is the boasting? He answers his own question. He says, it's excluded. (laughs) You can't brag about how good you are because you don't even make yourself good. And really, your sinfulness actually amplifies the beauty of God's holy work in your life. I mean, you can't go wrong. You can be really good and God's not impressed by it. You can be really bad and God's not depressed by it. God's going to save you anyway. That's the doctrine of sin. We can't take credit for work only God can do. Amen? As we move on to verse 5, David declares his utter and complete sinfulness and the origin of it from Adam. From the moment his forming body was conceived in the womb, before he had done anything good or bad, sin had already entered into him. This doctrine is called the doctrine of original sin. It says that all men born on this earth with earthly fathers are sinners with the proclivity to sin and are dead in those sins. That without the quickening power of the Holy Spirit to raise them to walk in newness of life, that we would remain lost in this eternal death and be damned. David says this, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. If there's any doubt about what God's word teaches, we're sinners from the moment of conception. We like to think we're, we're a living being from the moment of success, from, from conception. We like that, right? But how many of you have a t-shirt? I was a sinner from the moment of conception. <laughs> I was a sinner when I heard a heartbeat. no. No, I was a sinner from the moment that the DNA began forming and one cell became two. In verse 6, David speaks to something in the law often difficult to address. God is not merely wanting to regulate behavior from, uh, that everyone can see. He has even more for us than this. Verse 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. From the very first commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. From Deuteronomy 6, 5 to the command to not covet the things of others. Can you see covetousness? Can you see if Laura is looking over her picket fence to her neighbor's fountain and going, I hate them. 
I want their fountain. It is bigger than mine. I hate them all. I want them to die. I want their fountain. Like no one can see that. If that's in her heart, only God can see that, right? I say that because I got a fountain. You guys you, you go visit my house. I got a little tiny fountain out in my backyard now. I'm like becoming this old man, you know. I'm going to get like a, a rake and some gravel and start doing like zen gardening. It's because of you that I'm doing this. Just so you know, I'm, I, I got to cope. I got to do some coping. Okay? I got little fish, you know, that swim around, you know. It's true. It's true. I got distracted. Sorry about that. God wants us to not even want to sin. He wants to change our hearts. That's what David is talking about. He's saying, God wants truth from the inward parts. He wants wants even what can't be seen to be made right. David understood this. David knew that people saw what he had done with his hands, but he's saying, I don't just want to be cleansed from the things that I do that people see. I want to be cleansed. I want to be, you know, what did Jesus say? Clean clean the, what kind? The inside of the cup so that the outside may be clean. And David wants that as well. That's what his prayer is. How many of you want that to be your prayer? Oh God, Lord, I don't just want to look good to others, but Lord, wash me, cleanse me from the inside out. Oh God. Lord, I may be able to turn away from this, that, and the other sin, and, and others might see this, or I might even feel good that I'm not doing it, but oh God, Lord, I reek with it because inside I want to do it so bad. Oh God, heal me, change me. David prays that kind of prayer. May that be our prayer today. He wants us not even to want to sin. It's no great thing that we don't steal or kill people or commit adultery if we really want to. And we just don't do it for a number of reasons, for fear of getting caught or being poorly thought of, fear of jail. David understood that God could see his heart, his motives, his attitudes, and he knew they had all been wrong before he had committed his very sins that we talked about. You know, someone said this to me once, and maybe this will affect you if you're a young person or old. I don't know. This, this affected me the rest of my life. He said, a man will never do in his body what he already hasn't done in his mind. You can hang out with that one for a minute. We want God to purify our hearts and our minds. Our meditation should be on Him. Obedience and holiness are as much as heart and mind issues as they are the works of our hands and feet. May we give God our thoughts and our meditations, our innermost desires. And may He give us holy lives inside and out and the joy that comes with it. In verse 7, David asks again for God to clean him up from the filth of his sin. If sin is appealing to you, then you probably don't know it for what it really is. This is my little personal analogy. Sin is like the peanut butter on the mouse trap in the basement crawl space covered with the filth of dead mouse blood. I don't know. You guys ever catch mice in your basement? You ever want to eat the peanut butter off of that trap? I don't, I don't think so. That's about what sin is. It smells like it's peanut butter, but I don't want any part of it. I don't want to touch it. The filth of of sin takes our peace, it dampens our joys, it alienates us from those that we love, and in the end, it kills us. The Bible says every man's tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. If you allow sin to live in your life, it will kill you. God will kill you. You may say, no, he won't. I say, yes, he will. He said he will, and I'm going to agree with him. You can brag if you want. But if you want to live in sin, if you know Christ, God will kill you. 
The pleasures of sin for a short season and the stench of their rottenness reeks for generations. David cries out, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, only God can cleanse us. We have no way to accomplish this. It must be a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that God did this to David. Did you guys hear the contrast of 2 Samuel 11 in Acts chapter 13? Did you hear this? Did, Did you miss it? Chapter 11 is the most heinous, horrible, awful series of events by one person I've ever read anywhere. In chapter 13 of Acts, David is the subject of Paul's sermon. He talks about the sure mercies of David. He talks about David, a man after God's own heart, who will do all of his will. Nothing is said of David's sin in Acts chapter 13. And Israel, no one raised their hand, Abby, and raised their, and objected and go, what are you talking about David for? He was a nasty guy. No, when the children of Israel and the people here in Antioch who knew God's word, Heard David mentioned the sure mercies of David and the quotations from the Psalms of David. They said, they put their hand on the heart and they said, oh, he speaketh of David. And they said, and Jesus, the son of David. Oh, the son of David. How on earth, Becky, how on earth does it happen that a man so disgusting can be washed so thoroughly? Folks, the same way you can be. God can wash us and cleanse us even in our lifetimes. We think if we confess our sin, everyone will know. And God says, no, through confession, through honesty, through desire, through prayer, through calling on God to wash us from the inside out, God can take us and he can do it. It's amazing. You know, I once saw, uh, some of you kids are way too, you guys never heard of David Copperfield. Well, you probably heard of the David Copperfield, the book, but... There was this great magician called David Copperfield. Have you guys ever heard of him? He did amazing things. He made like uh, a Learjet disappear, tigers disappear. They were like jumping. If you've ever seen David Copperfield, he's the greatest magician in my lifetime. And one time, uh, Tim, I don't know if you were old enough, but he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. He had people all around it and people were there and it was on television. Millions of people watched this. The Statue of Liberty disappeared. Anybody see this? Does anybody watch this? How did he do that? I don't know. I don't know how I did it. But I saw it. Right? You've seen what God did in the life of David. You can't deny it, right? David is good. He's the singer. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the lovely dancer before the Lord. Is he not? He's the the giant killer. He's the amazing boy that trusted in God. You, you can't, I can tell you his story today and tomorrow you will forget it. You can't even retain it in your mind. And for thousands of years, we can do it. I don't know. It's magic what God does. Don't you love David? Don't, don't you wish you knew him? Don't you, don't you wish you could sing like David and love like David and dance like David? See, you're already there. It's easier. That's the way you can't see him any other way. God took a man stained like few others and washed him so that history itself, clear for everyone to see, was not changed. David was a murderer, an adulterer, caused the death of thousands of innocent people. When he numbered Israel, 70,000 people died. But what God did was even more amazing than David Copperfield's illusion. It did not only happen for a few seconds. It happened for thousands of years after 
a man after his heart, the giant killer, the hope of Israel. You and I know it, even if we don't know how. We know it's true. In verse 8, David asks God for the ability to supernatural joy amidst the pain of certain correction. He says this in verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken might rejoice. God had dealt out bone-crushing blows upon David. In human terms, it would be considered abusive. And I'm not recommending that people do this to their children. But God did more. He did not do any more than needed to be done for David's egregious sins. But here David prays that his broken bones will rejoice at the mercy that he did not utterly wipe him off the face of the earth forever and cast him away. As I pointed out earlier, David and Bathsheba's baby died and his prayers wouldn't change that. The sword of murder David had wielded against Uriah would be let go in David's house. When I read this for you of God's pronouncement, listen to this. 2 Samuel 12. Now, therefore, this is what God was saying to him through the prophet. Like, hey, you've confessed your sins. It's all going to be good. No? Now, therefore, the sword of the Lord shall never. Everybody say never. Never. We don't really want to say never, do we? We want to say never be remembered against us. We like that one, but we don't like this never. This is not a good never. The sword of the Lord shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes. And I will give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wife in the sight of the sun. Like, David is wanting joy for this. Where's the joy in that? My sons are going to kill each other. My baby's going to die. My wife's going to commit adultery with me in front of the entire nation in public. Dear God. Verse 12. For thou didst it secretly. This is what God said. But I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord hath put away your sin from you and you're not going to die. You see, see the mercy of David. The mercy of David wasn't that he didn't have these horrible things happen because they all did. Verse 14, Howbeit, because you did this thing, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, and the child that is born to you shall surely die. Which of us, after hearing these words, Brother Matt, after living some of this out, could write such a song as David did here in Psalm 51? This is what makes David like no other man in a favorable way. This is part of the washing of David. Instead of David going, why did you do this to me? And all of these things are terrible. And Lord, you've been unfair. And everyone else has done bad things. And Lord, you let them off the hook. But why? No, he doesn't do that. And what he says, he says, Lord, give me joy that the bones that you've broken might rejoice in your salvation. Did he get salvation from the consequences of his sins? He did not. This is what makes David unlike other men in a favorable way. He's worse than most might think themselves, but certainly he is better. (laughs) He's better in an extraordinary way, an extraordinary degree than you and me in this. And we have to admit it. 
Most of us might be tempted to say, oh, I said I was sorry. I know I was wrong. What more do you want from me, God? I don't deserve this. I can't bear it. It's not fair. But that's not what the humble man says. That's not what the man who wants washed by God says. This man knows he deserves worse than he has gotten. And he, his broken bones are thankful for the mercy that he gets. And the bones that are broken are the mercy itself that has come. Oh God, give us hearts like this. Crush us, oh Lord. But please don't leave us. Hearts broken because of our sin cry out, but not like most of us do for God. To go easy on us. To not make the consequences so bad. And in the following verses, 9 through 12, we'll hear a plea of a humble man, a crushed man who loves God more than the pleasures of his sin or the comfort of his consequence-free forgiveness. He will not be like Saul who wanted Samuel to honor him before the people when he sinned. And he sought to retain his lofty position as king. Remember, he's like, honor me before the people. Come on, Samuel. Let's go and worship. Honor me before the people. David doesn't do that. You will hear no such thing here. What you will hear is a song of love crushed like the alabaster box and poured out to God. You see, when David wrote these words, these horrible things had already come on him. The story isn't over before his son dies. He certainly didn't have time to write a psalm about it then. The first verse of the next chapter after his baby dies is that Amnon loved his half-sister Tamar so much made him ill and he raped her. There's no time. David prays this, he says, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a right spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. In shame, David cries out with the groanings of grief for his sin, for God not to look, to hide his face from the ugliness of what he has done and erase it from his memory. He wants to be restored to his closeness with God, which David cannot imagine is possible in his current condition. Oh God, give me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. David wants the darkness within him to be healed so that the fountain of his soul issues forth pure praise to God and not pollution that had spilled forth wantonly like his actions had. This should be our cry when we sin, forgive me and change me so that I hate this sin and desire it no more. Pleading with God not to allow him to keep on being the king or remain respectable in the eyes of the people, but not to leave him. He did not plead for any good and favorable things except for that God would not leave him. The momentary pleasures he had received from the sin were nothing in comparison to the fullness of joy and everlasting pleasures at the right hand of a God who loved him. Crush me, O Lord, but please don't leave me. Destroy Eden, O God. Kick me out of its lovely blooming isles. But walk with me in the desert of my own doing and in the sand and the heat of my oasis will be nothing but beauty if your voice speaks to me there in my desert. Crush me, O Lord, but please don't leave me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation no matter the cost of it and fill me with your Holy Spirit. David cries out in another song, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. 
give us hearts that feel that way about God. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted to thee. David's hope is that seeing him forgiven and restored will speak to others who need the same thing. We think if we correct them, if we tell them that they're wrong, that'll help. And God says, there's another way. How about through the forgiveness of your own sins and the mercy that God has on you? Might that be a message to sinners? Indeed, confession, honesty, and humility can be contagious in a congregation. And I pray it spreads through us as we pray for God to save us from our besetting sins. In verses 14, 15, he continues the refrain, adding that if these things happen, that praise will pour forth from him. That those that have been forgiven much, love much, as Jesus taught in Luke chapter 7, when he spoke of the woman whose sins were many, but her love was great. He spoke about the parable of the man forgiven of the great debt who could never pay the debt. Oh, Lord, fill our mouths with praise. Oh, God, crush us, Lord. But please do not leave us. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Oh, God, the God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Oh, Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Our song should never be the song of our own goodness, but of God's. Our open lips of God should be praise of God that we will sing to him for his goodness of not wiping us from the face of the earth and casting us from his presence. In verse 16 and 17, David shows that he has come through this crushing experience, understanding what God wants, what great things God has for us, even in the reaping of our sins. Isn't this amazing? That you can sin and reap your sins. And even in the reaping of your sin, can you believe that God can give you something good in that too? His love is there to heal drives that he has given us, to comfort the grief that he brings, to heal the broken bones that he has broken. Oh, his love is unsearchable and amazing. Verse 16, for thou desires not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken, everybody say a broken, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. You know what brought David to a broken heart? Was the broken bones of God's judgments upon him. And even in that, he found beauty. Crush us, oh God, of our salvation. Do what we need, Savior, to save us from our sins. But no matter what you do, please never leave us. How many want a heart like that? Draw us close to you. Give us joy, even in the pains of correction and new direction. Verses 18 and 19 resolve this confession and heart cry of repentance with the goodness of God. He says, verse 18 and 19, the final verses, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion and build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then shall they offer bullocks upon my altar. David realized that he wasn't the cornerstone, that it was Christ, that he was just one of the rocks in the wall and one of the rocks in the building and that God would take him and put him wherever he wanted him and that he would build his church. 
And that's what Christ is doing through you and I, through us vessels of clay, through us stones that could never cry out, but now we can. God's, God's made us like those stones and we can cry out today. Amen. Let us pray. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.